0: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: Do the Liberal Democrats have a future in British politics? Is the party over after being smashed in last year's general election? Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In our latest interview special, I'm speaking to Ed Davey about whether his party can find a purpose again. He's running for the leadership, so I imagine he does. Mr. Davey was first elected to Parliament in 1997 for the London seat of Kingston and Surbiton and hasn't left its frontbench team since. During the coalition government with the Conservatives, he took ministerial office at the Department for Energy and Climate Change, joining the Cabinet in 2012 as the Secretary of State. He lost the seat at the 2015 election, but bounced back two years later. Since the former leader, Joe Swinson, lost her seat at the 2019 election, he's been the Lib Dems acting leader. So, Ed, thank you very much for joining us on Payne's Politics. Good to be with you, Seb. So, how has the leadership contest been for you? It's all happened in lockdown, really, so you can't do the debates, the normal campaign things that you do. How have you managed to communicate with your party members? Well, it's been all over Zoom and it's been a bit weird
2: because I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to read a room when you're doing it on Zoom. You know, you get some feedback afterwards, what people have said in the chat box and on on Twitter and so on, but it's not like a normal political meeting. What it does mean is you're getting
1: around the country quite quickly. Did you find that your party members have been engaged with this contest? A
2: lot have. I wouldn't say all have. But those people who are the sort of councillors, the activists, the really engaged members, they've been coming on to a lot of Zooms. I mean, I think we will have done over
1: 30 Zooms and 30 hustings by the time the campaign concludes. Well, let's start properly into that conversation, give you another chat, if not by Zoom. The Liberal Democrats have long been the third party of British politics. For years, they occupied the centre ground and reached their peak of popularity in 2005 in the wake of the Iraq War. While their spell in government with the Tories saw the UK's first stable coalition since the Second World War, it turned out to be disastrous for the party's reputation. And then came Brexit. The party attempted to renew itself by being the full-throated voice of remaining in the EU. In the 2017 election, it managed to gain four additional seats on a platform of holding a second referendum. But two years later, having lost the argument and then Britain having left the EU, the party returned to Parliament with no gains and just 11 MPs. So Mr Davy, if I could just begin with the very simple question, what is the point of the Liberal Democrats now? Brexit's happened. We're a radical reforming party, not just internationalist and pro-European.
2: We have a very strong green agenda. We've always led on the green agenda. I like to think in government, we led the way. Renewables nearly quadrupled when I was a cabinet minister. So we've got a very strong green track record, which is so important, both for the economy and for the climate emergency. But then we bring to that a commitment to social justice, which is particularly radical. It's about a bottom-up approach. It's about providing the housing, the education that is frankly not good enough in many parts of our country. And we bring, I think, to the whole debate around the NHS and care a very different perspective. We've always argued that you need to see the health service and care together. The fact that the other parties haven't resulted in Johnson saying, protect the NHS, which of course was important, but forgetting the care sector. And that has been a disaster in this pandemic.
1: Now, when you talk about the green agenda, this is obviously something that you've been working on for a long time since your days in government. But it feels like the Conservatives are really trying to remodel themselves as the Green Party. And Labour's doing the same thing as well, that they've adopted a lot of that agenda. What's unique about what you're saying?
2: Well, it's the sheer scale and ambition that we've got based on a credible background. I mean, the reality is... The Conservatives have taken us backwards on the green agenda. Their only successes have been on the basis of the policies that I introduced. You know, the fact that they got rid of zero carbon homes, that they smashed the solar industry, that they didn't go ahead with carbon capture and storage, that they failed to take the Tidal Lagoon projects forward. And the Conservatives have a dreadful record on climate, and they may now try to be changing their spots, but they're not very credible. And what they put forward so far is really not very ambitious. The other parties don't seem to realise how urgent it is and how, given the disaster in British economy because of Covid, this is a massive opportunity to completely change everything
1: and it needs to be led by a radical green agenda. Now let's compare your candidacy to that of Leila Moran, who's a much younger recruit to the Liberal Democrats' parliamentary party. For listeners who haven't been following this contest, what would you say the difference is between the two of you?
2: Well, uh, there's some obvious ones. Lady's a bit younger than I am, and she's a woman. So there are some obvious differences. But in terms of what we bring to this challenging moment for our party in our country, it's different things. I think I bring experience, experience of 20 years in parliament, five years in government, uh, negotiating at the EU, the United Nations. And I also bring my skills and knowledge as an economist. And the economy is going to dominate everything. And I think that experience and that expertise makes me the leader for this time. You know, we've we've really got to show that the Liberal Democrats are up for this massive challenge affecting millions of our people, their jobs, their livelihoods, tens of thousands of businesses. And I think I'm best placed to give the party the cutting edge on the economy.
1: Well, talking of the economy, what do you think about a universal basic income? Because this is something I know Ms. Moran has talked about. You've mentioned it before. Is this something you want to see adopted after COVID? I think we should look at it. And the reason we
2: should is the people who will really benefit. Most people wouldn't see any difference because if you've got a tax allowance, you're using that, if you've got a basic state pension, that would be more than any universal basic income. So many people wouldn't see any difference. The people who would get extra payments are people like women who are unpaid carers, either for the children or for disabled people or for elderly relatives. And one of my messages in this campaign is we've got to get serious about caring. I speak with experience. I was a young carer. My mother was dying. I was carer for my gran. I was a carer for my disabled son now. And I see carers in my constituency, and, and I know there are 10 million carers. And if we're really going to learn from COVID, and realize that carers are a critical part of our society, I think a basic income is one of the ways that you can recognize that, as well as recognizing the most vulnerable in our society who are often the homeless people, people escaping domestic violence, young people in transition, who aren't actually in touch with the welfare state. And so if you really want to be radical and have a caring agenda and have an agenda which reaches the most vulnerable, you've got to do something like this. And the fundamental question, which worries people, is how do you pay for it? And I put forward this proposal that we should create a sovereign wealth fund. So all this money that the government has loaned to tens of thousands of businesses, much of it won't get repaid or business will struggle to repay it and it will prevent them growing. And what I've said is why don't we allow them, rather than paying back debt, that they should give equity to the government. So the government would hold equity in tens of thousands of businesses. And they put that in a fund, which we managed, and the dividends from that fund would help pay for a universal basic income. That seems to me quite a radical egalitarian approach to pushing off from this COVID disaster
1: and creating a new society, which is a lot fairer. Well, it's still a huge amount of money. I think at the last election, it was about 300 billion pounds is the cost for universal basic income. and. (laughs) figures banded around. You've got to assume what's the level of the basic income, first of
2: all, who actually gets it. And I'm afraid most of the figures I've seen are completely inaccurate to the sorts of things that I'm talking about. So how much would your plan cost then? Well, we would have to debate in the party the exact level it brought in and when it would be brought in. But it would be a 10, 20 billion type figure rather than the figure you're talking about. And I would want to make sure it was paid for largely through this sovereign wealth fund that I'm proposing.
1: Now, one of the criticisms it's also made of UBI, as well as the general cost of it, depending on what level it's at, is the fact that it discourages people from working, essentially. What's your response to that? Well, it would if you had it at a very high level. That's not what I'm proposing at all, because
2: I see it as helping these particular people, the most vulnerable, unpaid carers, homeless people, and so on, and as a basic income for them to make sure they actually have something, and then, of course, the rest of the welfare system kicks in, then it actually makes huge sense, and it is not a disincentive for work. So I'm glad we're having this debate, you know, Seb, and it's really important because the universal credit system has not worked very well. We've seen huge amounts of evidence of that.
1: In what way has a universal credit worked?
2: come to my constituency office and see the people who are waiting weeks before they get any money, are having to rely on food banks, are then getting into debt because the government doesn't give them the extra money, it loads it to them, that because their employer pays them twice in one month period, the HMRC believes that they had too much money one month, cuts back their universal credit, and then doesn't give them for next month. The administrative damage and complexity that we've seen on universal credit, which I see at the grassroots with my constituents, has been frankly a disaster. And, you know, that's why many people are saying this hasn't worked, we're going to have to look at it again. We need to work
1: to a system that actually ensures that the poorest get some money and are not left destitute. So on economics, your pitch essentially is to move the Lib Dems to a place more to the left of the Labour Party. I completely disagree with that. I mean,
2: uh, I'm someone who believes in free trade and competition and private enterprise. That's hardly to the left of the Labour Party. The Labour Party wants to nationalise huge amounts of our economy still. It doesn't believe in the sort of competitive market economy that I believe in. By focusing on one issue, and no problem without debating it, you're trying to suggest a economic philosophy from that, and I don't think that follows.
1: The key thing that the Liberal Democrats need to do, Mr Davey, is to be heard again because current polling has the party on about 6%. That's down from 10% in February again. What is your strategy to get an audience with the electorate? Because the fact is, when you looked at the last election, a lot of people just wrote off the party because of that policy of saying, we're just going to revoke Article 50 and cancel Brexit. And for a lot of people, that seemed to breach their sense of fair play and within British politics. Well, uh,
2: the last few months have been Difficult. I'm the interim co leader during a pandemic after a disastrous election. (laughs) So I wasn't expecting us to do dramatically well in the polls in the last few months. Um, I remember when Paddy Ashdown became leader, 11 months into his leadership, we had the European elections in 1989, nationwide elections, and we scored 5.9%. So in politics, certainly in the Liberal Democrats, when you've been in the party, 30 years like I have, you learn to be patient and take your opportunity when it comes. And our opportunity is coming. Let me give you one example. During my time as interim co-acting leader, when at Prime Minister's question time, I managed to get the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, to accept for the first time that there should be an independent inquiry into the government's handling of COVID. And up to that point, he, you know, boxed and Cox avoided answer the question, been really slippery. And I asked the question in a way which sort of gave him no choice. And I'm really proud that it's been the Liberal Democrats leading the campaign for an inquiry because it's so important we learn the lessons. You know, there could be a future pandemic. There could be a second wave. And I think the government's handling has been pretty disastrous.
1: Now, let's just look back to the 2019 election. Just going back to that policy about stopping Brexit, do you think it was a mistake to go with what your party membership wanted and just say we should revoke Article 50?
2: Yeah, I mean... I think the mistake was the combination of that being one of the options in our manifesto, if we won power, and linking that to Joe saying she wants to be prime minister. I think if we had stuck with what I imagined would have been the policy, which is Liberal Democrat MPs will vote in parliament for a second referendum, I think that would have been far more popular. But I think the fact that we presented ourselves as trying for government, which I you know, didn't think was that credible, and that you know, when we got into government, we were going to revoke, I think that did go down quite badly. The General Election Review, which I co-commissioned, says that it also has lots of other criticisms of the party, and it's a mandate for reform to make sure we get our message heard better by the voters so that we come fit for purpose, we're a better campaigning machine, because I think there's a huge thirst for liberal ideas out there. Huge thirst for an internationalist party that believes in the market economy, yet actually understands that we need a fairer society. No one trusts the Conservatives with building a fairer society. Um, Frankly, I don't think anyone trusts them in building a greener economy either. So by us growing and becoming stronger and standing up for those liberal values, I think we will win lots of votes. And I think we will surprise people.
1: Now, in that election review, which I think described the Lib Dems campaign as a high-speed car crash, it said that the party needs to, quote, reconnect with ordinary, normal people. Who are those people?
2: They're all over the country. Lots of people have voted Liberal Democrat at one time or another over the last few years. I mean, let's remember, just over a year ago, we got our best ever results at local elections, our best ever results at the European elections under Vince Cable, who was a coalition cabinet minister. So it is possible for the party to win votes across the country in large numbers and be a player. We've shown that. I want us to show it again. And by giving a strong leadership on the economy, on the green agenda, on the social justice agenda, I think we really could surprise people. We've got to be realistic. We'll have to really engage in our local government family. We've already been growing back quite well in local government. We need to do that a lot more. We need to be a serious force in the Scottish and Welsh and London elections next May. In Scotland, I think it's absolutely crucial. We have a vital constitutional role to play. The Conservatives are completely in a mess in Scotland. Boris Johnson isn't very popular. The Labour Party have failed to get their act together and they're still led by a Corbynista. We need to be the alternative to the SNP, the pro-Europe, pro-union alternative to the SNP under Willie Renier's leadership, so that we have critical roles to play in the next year, which if we
1: succeed in those, we build the foundations for future success. And what does that success look like? You know, how many more MPs would you like to see after the 2024 election?
2: (laughs) Good try, Seth. You know, you, you don't make predictions this far out. All I believe is that we can do an awful lot better than the last three general elections. You know, I think this is my seventh parliament, I've seen us at different stages, stronger and weaker, in government, out of government. I know that well-led, with a little bit of wisdom and now, the Liberal Democrats can punch way above our weight and you know, help change the government's policies by careful campaigning. The fact that we are the lead party on the demand for an inquiry into COVID, the fact that we've got more credibility on the climate than any other party, this is a good base, it seems to me, to go
1: into our future campaigning. Now, in that election review, it said that there is a danger that we mustn't become a party for middle-class graduates. I just thought it was quite an interesting sentence because it actually struck me those are the very people the Liberal Democrats can now appeal to because the Conservative Party is already pivoting its policies and approach to speak to the Red Wall, those areas that they won from the Labour Party for the first time. And in the southeast of England, there's a lot of people out there who were Remainers, who are Liberal with a small L, who traditionally voted Tory but might not necessarily vote for Boris Johnson's Tory party. By ruling that out, aren't you giving up an electoral opportunity there? I'm thinking of places like St Albans, which you won at the last election, or Guildford in future. So the general election view doesn't say we, we should ignore middle-class graduates.
2: It's simply saying that we shouldn't stop there. I am delighted that you agree that there's a lot of people who would describe themselves as middle-class Graduates who want to vote Liberal Democrat, and I think that we can get even larger numbers. But you know, I also want to make sure that people who are lower middle class, working class, people who are in many different parts of the country, in the north, in the Midlands, in the east of England, Wales, and Scotland, in the southwest, that they see us as relevant to their lives in this election. I focused on caring, partly because of my own experience, partly because of what's happened during COVID, partly because if we're going to reform the NHS, we've got to get social care right. And also because there are 10 million carers out there, according to Carers UK, that's more than three times as many people who voted Liberal Democrat the last election. I think
1: they're a natural constituency and they're not all middle-class graduates. Now, I know how much you love looking backwards, but let's just go back to those salad days of 2010 to 2015 when you were in government as part of the coalition with the Tories. Do you have any regrets about serving as a minister because you've recently called the Lib Dems an anti-conservative party, but you're the people who put them into power and allowed them to do lots of the things you now want to overturn? Well, in power, lots of things that Liberal Democrats
2: wanted to do in 2010 and want to do now. So I fought the Conservatives uh, as an anti-conservative politician round the cabinet table and I beat them. You know, they didn't want me to build all these offshore wind farms. They tried to stop me, but I won and now Britain is the world leader in offshore wind. How many technologies and industries can you say Britain is the world leader when we weren't a decade ago? Hardly any. And it was Liberal Democrat policies, policies that I legislated for, that have seen the price of offshore wind come down from 160 pounds per unit of electricity per megawatt hour to less than 40. By bringing in competition, by a partnership between the state with subsidies and special auctions, which has brought in innovation and in private investment and created this almost miracle of a change in our electricity system. It's the reason why coal power stations are not generating. We're using renewables. So I'm deeply proud of doing that. And I did that, yes, in a government that was a coalition with the Conservatives. But I showed that we could put forward Liberal Democrat ideas and win them and get them in place. So do I apologise for
1: nearly quadrupling Britain's renewable power? Uh, No, I don't. You've just made the very good case there for the Lib Dems being in coalition. But in the 2019 election, the party said it wouldn't go into coalition with either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. You know, could you imagine going to coalition with the Tories or Labour? Well, when you think about before elections,
2: you know, where you might go, the first thing you need to say is, what do you stand for? Because actually, you shouldn't insult the electorate. You should say, look, we want you to vote for us not because of what may happen the other side of polling day, but here are our policies, a greener economy, a fairer society, more caring country, and get people to vote for them. At the last election, the problem was the Conservatives had gone very right-wing and wanted, in our view, to betray the national interest by leaving the European Union. And the Labour Party, first of all, were very ambivalent about leave or remain, and we were also led by someone who was extremely left-wing, with whom we had almost nothing in common. And so when we were asked that question, we gave an answer
1: which was true, which was, we don't have anything in common with these people. We're not going to be in coalition with them. Betraying the national interest is quite strong language there. I could be stronger if you like. I think it's an utter disgrace. Brexit is not good for our country. The Tories platform
2: of the last election. Listen, I know that they've got a mandate, they've got the votes in parliament, we're not going to be able to stop them, and we're going to have to try to work out how we respond to whatever Brexit deal or no deal happens. But I haven't suddenly changed my opinion of Brexit. I think it's a disaster for people's livelihoods and jobs. I think it's a disaster for our influence in the world, for our ability to influence things like climate change, things like tackling international crime. In a world where you see growing trade tensions between the US and China, you know, does it make sense to pull out of the world's single market? It's a nonsense. Uh, during what could be the deepest recession for 300 years because of COVID, does it make sense to put up trade barriers and increase cost of business exporting and importing? Of course it doesn't.
1: The Conservatives should be ashamed of what they're doing to our country. Now, you've said history will prove you right on the issue of leaving the EU. At which point do you expect that's going to be? <laughs> well, when is history? I mean, well, have you been proven right yet? Will you be proved right next year? No, I was going to make... The point.
2: I think it was a communist leader who's asked their opinion of the French Revolution 200 years afterwards, and he said it's a bit too early to decide on whether it worked out. And the point I'm making to you, Seb, is one has to work out when you can make a proper judgment. But you can make a
1: judgment beforehand. You can say, does this make sense? Do you think it'll be proven within your lifetime, shall we say? Yes. Yes. Now, obviously, Boris Johnson is still trying to get a trade deal, and we'll find out in the next couple of weeks and months if he does manage to strike that. Is there any situation you could imagine the Lib Dems supporting that deal? Well,
2: I would rather have a deal than no deal, right? Because that's in our country's interests, which is the marker. Would I rather stay in the European Union than have a poor trade deal? Yes, I'd rather stay in the European Union. So it depends on what the comparison
1: is, doesn't it, sir? So you're not ruling out supporting the deal then, because we've obviously left the EU now. and We are going to leave the single market and customs union at the end of this year. So the question is not about staying or remaining in the EU. It's about are we going to have Boris Johnson's trade deal or no trade deal? Well, when we see the trade deal, I'm expecting that it
2: won't be a very good one because they want to take us out of the single market and they want to take us out of the customs union. That a priori, before I even see the deal means huge extra bureaucracy, lots of red tape for businesses. It means a loss of jobs. So I'm not going to be very keen on the deal in whatever form it actually comes, because
1: it's made on a framework which is bad for our economy. Now, let's just look forward to some little campaigning things. It strikes me the Liberal Democrats have this constant problem that you get decent vote shares in election, but not that many seats. And the party's obviously been a long-term campaigner for proportional representation. How do you think you can actually win elections in an era when that's not coming? Well, we've
2: shown that we can... In recent history, in my time, when I first got into Parliament, and I won my seat when I wasn't supposed to, I was number 106 on our target list, and we won 47. And the reason I managed to win was we managed to persuade enough non-conservative supporters to come behind our flag. It's an idea called tactical voting. When you have this unfair first-past-the-post system, you've got to work out how you play it to your advantage. And at the last election, the right-wing nationalists and populists and Brexiteers managed to make it work for them. And the progressives didn't make it work for them. Now, if you go back to 97, if you go back to 2001, the reverse was the case. So it is possible with good political leadership to find ways to defeat the forces of regression and, and nationalism and right-wing Brexiteerism, and uh, to do that by understanding that there are ways to get the first past the post system to work for progressives. And clearly, that is
1: in our interests. Have you got expectations for next year's local elections? Because that's going to be a test. You're first as leader, if you win this contest, to see if you can punch back. Because as you said, you had a very good set of local elections during the Brexit travails. Well, I'm quite confident. I do expect us to make gains. It's quite early to be making
2: predictions, but we've got some fantastic councillors and some fantastic candidates. And people are very, very up for campaigning now on the, whether it's the green agenda that I've talked about, the Conservatives' failure on caring, the Conservatives' desire to completely reorganise local government at a time of Brexit and COVID and frankly the shambles of the conservatives and their continual attack on local government i think that suggests that we could make real progress at the next local elections
1: if you do win this contest i think the results are coming on august the 27th what are the first things you're going to do as lib dem leader
2: well i'll be setting out the priorities for us which will be to make sure we get that inquiry into covid which will be to make constructive suggestions about how we manage this disaster for our country. It will be about how we avoid a no deal, which would do so much damage to our economy and businesses. And it will be setting out a new Liberal Democrat agenda of a greener economy, a fairer society, and a more caring country. I will be repeating our values and our policies to show to millions of people that they can now trust the Liberal Democrats as the party
1: that has policies to improve their lives. And I will be laser beam focused on that. And of course, the last question, which everyone will be wondering is, are you going to win? (laughs) You know, a candidate never answers that question ahead of
2: times, because you jinx yourself, don't you? But I've enjoyed the campaign. I think it's been a pretty lively one. If you'd been, along with Leila and myself, on all these Zoom hustings, I think you'd have been quite amazed at the range of questions that we've been covering. So it's been a lively contest, even if it hasn't been covered in the uh, traditional media as much. So I'm grateful, Seb, for you doing this podcast.
1: Yes, indeed. And I think you've also said that if Leila Moran does beat you and does win, you'd serve under her? Um, Of course. We're in a
2: Liberal Democrat family. We
1: work together. Grace, Thank you very much, Ed. That was really good. Great. Nice to talk to you. And that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. Thank you very much again to Ed Davey for joining us. And if you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Paint politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Fiona Simon, Liam Nolan, and Josh Delamere. Our sound engineers were Louise Burton and Breen Turner, with research by George Steer. As ever, thanks for listening.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen